Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Jesus 
receive our morning offering at this time, please. Brother James Pettigo, will you lead our offertory prayer? Amen. Well, we have a lot to be thankful for, but we have a lot to be in prayer for, too. And I want y'all to pray for my sound crew back there today that he doesn't have a stroke and just pass out. Because this guy, listen, him and Randy Gross, 
it's been uh, one of the benefits of having a 200 year old church building is that you have critters that are unnamed and unknown and they came in Wednesday night we came in for choir practice and we didn't have any sound equipment on this platform that would work so there's been something chewing on things down here well he fixed it they they set up all night Thursday Friday night fixed it they come in this morning same problem so y'all pray for David <laughs> and for Randy and them. Um, the devil's not going to get over on this, okay? Uh, he can't steal our joy, and he can't quench my spirit. Uh, so uh, we're going to give God the praise and the glory, and we're going to stand and sing choir as we continue to worship. When I survey the wondrous cross.
consider all the world thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. And when I think of God, his Son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art, when Christ shall come. With shout of acclamation, and lead me home. What joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow with humble adoration, and then proclaim, My God, how great Thou art! Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art, how great thou art, how great thou art.
My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the tree, and I bear it no more. So it is well, it is well with my soul. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. Folks, my prayer, before we even open the holy writ of God, is that you can echo the sentiment of those songs, that you can stand at the feet of Jesus and shout, how great thou art, and it is well with my soul. And this morning, if you can't shout from the rafters that it is well with your soul, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God convicts you today, brings you to the foot of his cross, washes you in his redemption and his blood and his grace. Because we were meant to be a people that glorify a God that is so great that he can take all of our troubles, I must tell Jesus, all of my troubles, because I cannot bear these burdens alone. And folks, if you don't think, you know, somehow or another in the last, I don't know, 50 or 60 years of the, the, of the local church, we started breaking the service in halves. And we started saying the first half, that's the music part. And the last half, well, that's the preaching part. And if you were into the music part, you kind of just endured the preaching part. And if, if you were one that was into the preaching part, you kind of endured the music part. But my friends, think about the songs that we sang this morning. I must tell Jesus, I cannot bear these burdens alone. How great thou art when I survey the wondrous cross and it is well with my soul. When you listen to those lyrics you realize that, that in reality it's not two parts to a service. It's one continuous worship service of a risen king. It is one continuous worship service. And so now we don't, we don't start the second half of the service. We continue in worship through the reading and the teaching of his word. And this morning we'll be back in Titus. We'll be in chapter 3. The title of this morning's message is The Relationship... Of relationships. Now, I, I toyed with several titles to this message. Uh, it could have been Paul's final word on relationships. It could have been uh, the last straw of relationships. But, but all of those were taken when you Google searched them. And I didn't want you guys to think that I was taking somebody else's sermon title. So I had to come up with one that didn't come up in a Google search. But the relationship of relationships. How do our relationships uh, apply? How do we look? Uh, and we're kind of continuing a journey that we began last week. It wasn't intentional. I didn't really in intend necessarily when we did chapter two last week to do chapter three this week, or I may have done chapter one the first week, but it didn't come to me that way. But the Lord continued to put this chapter in my path and in my vision and in my prayer time. He just continued to, to put this in my face all Week long. And last week, if you'll remember, we, we were kind of setting the tone and the tenor 
of this entire letter. This is one of Paul's pastoral epistles. It's his letter to Titus. It's one that he left in Crete. He had left Titus in Crete to continue to operate the church there as he continued on his missionary journey. We said it has a similar tone, a similar feeling to the books of 1 and 2 Timothy as it's the same thing. Paul sending a letter back to somebody that he's left in place of a church to tell them how the church should look in his absence. First chapter of Titus, Paul spends time establishing the leadership structure, identifying how the church should look from a governmental standpoint, how it should be uh, set up in terms of that, how we should identify false leaders and false witnesses. Last week in the second chapter, if you'll recall, we looked that the church that honors God is going to, to have a look on the inside. People of all ages, of all creeds, of all nationalities, of all walks of life, of all social standards, you don't have any excuse not to be serving the Lord your God inside of the local church. And, and the driving undertone of this entire letter is that in everything we do, we do it on sound doctrine. So we all have a responsibility to one another in the local church and one of those responsibilities is that we protect, first and foremost, a sound doctrine. And obviously, sound doctrine is found in this holy writ of Scripture. And so this week, we're going to journey into this final part of this letter from Paul and get a kind of a final word on how all of our relationships should look as the church. And so would you please stand in honor and reverence for the reading of the Holy Word of God, if you're able, please stand. From Titus chapter 3, the first 14 verses. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Let us pray. God our Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you. We thank you that it is well with our soul. And God, our prayer this morning is that if there be one here that cannot stay, stand and say on full conviction that it is well with their soul, God, that you would 
Do for them what only you can, God, not what any of us can, but they're in need of a physician. God, we pray you would be that physician this morning. Convict, pierce the hearts of your people, Lord God. Change us, draw us near to you. If there be anything in this place that might hinder us from glorifying your name for the next few minutes, God, would you remove it from our minds and escort it from the doors, that you would be glorified in our time together. It is in your precious name that we pray, Jesus, as all of God's children said. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you will recall, Paul ended chapter 2 with a challenge to Titus as the pastor of the church. He said, listen, all the rebuking you do, this is the last verse of chapter 2, by the way, all the rebuking, all the exhorting, all the preaching that you do, do it with the authority of the Scriptures. Do it on the authority of sound doctrine, and you stand on that authority that has been given to you through that doctrine. And then he gives a challenge to the church. He said, church, none of you should despise the preaching and the teaching and the authority of Scripture. When the man of God preaches the Word of God, and it's different than what you want to hear from the man of God, from the Word of God, instead of being mad at the man of God, you ought to bend to the Word of God and not despise him. Paul then starts to jump into a new thought. And I think he was kind of setting us up a little bit. He said, hey, this is the Word. Believe the Word. Don't be mad at the Word. It's not the Word's fault. Don't even be mad at the man preaching the Word. It ain't his fault. It's the Word. And then Paul says, now I'm going to, I'm going to hit you really hard on your relationships with the world. He starts to jump into this new thought, and he says, Titus, I want you to remind everybody of something. Remind them says, it's kind of a term that means bring it back to their attention. Continue to put it in their face. I don't know. Uh, if you guys have this trouble in your house or not, but in my house, uh, I, I've got four children. And they constantly have to remind me of what I ought to be doing. Because I tend to forget. I've got one child that reminds me all the time. Thank God for Kaysen. Kaysen was put in my life to keep me straight. Carter was put in my life to keep me humble. McKinley was put in my life to show me what it looks like when Satan comes out of a child's mouth. <laughs> but Kaysen reminds me constantly. Every time we get ready to walk out the door, he say, Daddy, did you get Maddie J's diaper bag? Daddy, is, are there wipes in it? You know why he does that? Because one time we went to Walmart without a diaper bag, and I had to buy diapers and wipes. And I said on that day, Kaysen, don't let me forget to leave a house without a diaper bag. He reminds me. It's not something I don't know. It's not something that Lord knows Liette ain't done told me. But it's something that I got to be reminded of, right? I need him to remind me. That's what Paul's writing about here. He says, Titus, I need you to remind them. And what he's saying is I've already taught them. It's already been brought up. It's already been said. It's already something they ought to know. But I need you to keep it at the forefront of their mind because what they're going to want to do is slip back into the way they used to do it. And I need you to remind them of this. And he says, he says, Titus, I need you to remind them to be subject to the rulers and the authorities. Now he's talking about the rulers and the authorities of the land. He's talking about the leaders of, of, of the land. He says, listen, I need you to remind the people of God that they are subject when they're in the land to the authority of the land. That is something that they have to be uh, obedient to, they have to submit to. Now, I want to be clear, Paul would never tell you to be disobedient to the Word of God in an effort to be obedient to the law of the land, but he would tell you that if you live in the land 
The law is your land. Remember when the Pharisees tried to paint Jesus in the corner by saying, who are you going to pay your taxes to? He said, hey, go get me one of Caesar's coins. And he says, whose coin is this? It said, well, give, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Right? He said, I'm not worried about I'm not going to tell you to not obey the law. And so he tells Titus, he says, hey, these rulers and the authorities, I need you to, to treat them and be subject to their authority. For every good work we should be ready. And so how this first point is, is, it shows us that all of our relationships should be marked by grace. There is a grace that should mark all of our relationships. Now, I want you to keep in mind, because I know some of you, when I said that, what I just said about being subject to the authority of the land, some of you immediately said, but the authority in the land seems to be pagan. The authority in the land no longer seems to honor God. The authority in the land seems to no longer do what it should be doing. Should we continue to be subject to the authority in the land when we don't agree with what the authority in the land stands on? And I would remind you that throughout most of the Bible, very rarely was there a leadership or a government structure in place that honored God. Very rarely was, was there anyone in place where the leadership wasn't a pagan world leadership. And so I would say to you, yes, it stands that in Crete that day, it was a pagan leadership in Crete. And, and so Titus is here. They're not doing things for the work of Christ in Crete. The leadership there is not helping Brother Titus to set the church up. And the easy thing to do would be for the church to say, listen, we don't have to obey that because it ain't what we believe. We don't have to stand with that because it ain't what we think we ought to do. And we are going to speak ill of the authority in the land. We're going to talk down about it. We're going to tell them how bad they are. We're going to speak evil of it. We're going to, we're going to say what it is. We're going to call it out. But Paul says, he says, Titus, I want you to remind them not only be subject to the authority, but don't speak evil of anyone. Be a peacemaker. Be gentle. Be humble to all men. And that just doesn't sound very fun, does it? Wouldn't it be more fun to just speak ill of anybody we don't agree with? To speak out against any leadership we don't like? Wouldn't it be more fun to engage in the bickering of defending the faith and standing against bad leadership? And I tell you that as I studied these verses this week, I'm going to get a brother amen, uh, an amen from Brother Mike Hearn on this one. I know it. Sometimes I think Facebook may be the devil's tool. Because <laughs> let me tell you what Facebook did to me this week. It wasn't Facebook. It was one person on Facebook. I'm studying this text about being subject to the leadership and, and not saying anything negative and not engaging in, in evil of speaking of someone and being peaceable and being gentle and all of these things that, that Paul wrote to Titus that, that God was speaking to me. And there's one person who just kept putting these little things on Facebook. And I wanted so bad to say, you idiot, do you really believe that? Do you really think that? They were talking about the leadership in our country. Listen, I, this is not a political sermon at all. I, I don't care who you voted for. I really don't. I don't care who you voted for. I believe that God is on the throne and who's in the White House has got about as much authority as nothing in, in, in this world. God has got the supreme authority. God is a sovereign God. He'll remove the leaders that need removing. But, but I do believe that whether you like the president or not, he's still the president. 
And I believe you're subject to his authority. If I'm in this land, I'm subject to the authority of the land. When, when, when there was another president in office, I was subject to his authority whether I liked him or not. And so you're subject to this president's authority whether you like him or not if you live in this country right now. And there was that one person. And every time they put something on there, it's like it flashed to my telephone. It, it, it's like my phone would go vibrating. There'd be big red buttons on it. And every time I'd push them, it was something stupid. And what I wanted so bad to do was just go to typing and tell them just how stupid they were. And every time I'd get that message typed out, God would say, be peaceable to everyone. Don't speak evil to anybody, even the idiots, Brother Jason. I said, man, oh man, I'm not allowed to talk to them like that right now. I'll have to do that next week when we ain't in Titus 3. Because Paul smacked me in the face with this reminder. And he smacks us right in the face with this reminder of verse 3. He says, for you yourselves were once foolish. You were disobedient. You were deceived. You were serving your flesh. You were serving your own pleasures. You were living in anger. You were living in jealousy. And you hated one another. These are the marks of somebody living outside fellowship with God. The marks of the world... Our anger and jealousy and deceit and disobedience and foolishness and living that life marked by serving your own flesh and your own lust and your own desires. And God reminded me of verse 4. That when I was living deep in sin, the grace of God was revealed to me in my unrighteousness. Not while I deserved it, not while I earned it, but when I was living in ignorance and living in sin. And quite frankly, church, we will make a greater stand for Christ with simple obedience than we ever will with quarreling and arguing. We will make a greater stand for Christ with simple, humble obedience than we ever will with quarreling and arguing. Don't get me wrong. Goodness knows we live in a day where it's almost impossible to look around and not see a bunch of folks speaking ill of authority and leadership. It has become the norm to speak out against whatever authority is in your life. And it, as a semi-intelligent human being, sometimes is difficult not to want to portray some of your intelligence on somebody that needs it. But the Word of God says we're to look different. That's what the world is engaging in, aren't they? The world is saying my opinion matters, my thoughts matter, my stance matters. What I want is what matters most of all. And when I don't get my way, I'm going to shout it at the top of my lungs that what I got was wrong because it wasn't what I wanted. But the Word of God says that as a child of God, what we say is what I want doesn't matter. But what God wants is what's important. As a child of God, we say, I no longer have the desires of my flesh. I have the desires of the Spirit in my life. I no longer want the things that just please me. I want the things that honor God. And yet when we engage in bickering and quarreling with the world, what we show the world is we are in the same place that you are. 
We're standing on the same thing that you are. A desire to fulfill our own flesh and be right. It has become more important to be right than to be holy in this world today. There should be a grace that marks every one of our relationships. We should remember above everything that when we were lost in sin, God sent his son. And they called him Jesus. And he came as a baby born of a virgin. He lived a perfect sinless, blameless life. He died a gruesome death upon a tree, taking every bit of the wrath of God for your sin on his back. He was laid in a tomb. Three days later, he rose. He ascended to the Father. He sits at the right hand. He waits to come back and gather his bride. And yet, and yet, We tend to get saved and forget we were ever sinners. We tend to get saved and get sanctimonious all in the same breath. Suddenly we forgot that we were once ignorant. And can I just tell you something that gives me sometimes just a little chuckle? Now remember, I have a weird sense of humor. It doesn't take much to make me chuckle. But when I read verse 3 and it says... For you were also once foolish. It gives me a little chuckle when I'm angry at that person. I won't tell them how dumb they are to go. (laughs) Even God said you were foolish right now. I don't have to tell you. The word of God already told me what the situation was. We should have a grace that marks our relationships. When people look at the church and how it relates with the world, they ought to recognize that we extend the same grace that God extended to us in salvation. That should be what the world sees. The world should never see us and see us as those people who talk down to everybody who's not just like them. They should see us as those people who pick up those who don't have the same salvation that we have. We should never look to the world with anger. We should look to the world with a heart that is burdened for their souls. That they would believe on the one thing that could change their life. So there should be a grace that marks our relationships, but there should also be a holiness that marks our relationships. There should be a holiness that marks our relationships. Begin with me in verse 9. He says, Titus, you all should avoid foolish disputes. I'm going to stop right there just for one second. You know what that word foolish means? Stupid. Dull or unintelligent. That's what that word means. Paul says, Titus, stay out of stupid arguments. Stay out of stupid, divisive controversy. Avoid the things that have no real profit and no real meaning. Titus, if you can stay out of the stupid controversies, you will be just fine. He goes on to describe a few of them that that are stupid. He says, stay out of the genealogies and the the contentions and strivings about the law. 
They're not profitable. They're not useless. Now remember in that time, what was the big dispute in that time? You had the Jewish people who said, well, I'm I'm a descendant of Abraham, so I'm a joint heir. I'm the rightful heir uh, of the kingdom of God. I'm the rightful heir of the promised land. And it's only me. It's not the Gentiles. It's not those who don't have the same genealogy I have. And they found themselves worrying to death about how to trace their genealogy back from a bloodline to Abraham. And then they would say, what, because I'm a child of Abraham, I've interpreted this law correctly, and this is how you should live, that you can be made right with God. You must be circumcised. You must walk a certain distance on Sunday. You must read the Bible on Saturday, and you must pray 11 times on Friday, and you must wash your hands before you eat uh, of the the unleavened bread, and you must eat the leavened bread on this day. They had all their interpretation of the law, and they said, this is how you're to be made right. And so it came along and Paul, remember what he preached. He said the law means nothing apart from the grace of Jesus. Grace sets us free from all that binding of that law because the law cannot, you can't live up to the standard of the law. You never could to begin with. You weren't meant to. And Paul said, but even when you can't, Jesus did. He died for you and you can be set free and his grace abounds over all of that. And Paul preached and preached and preached and yet the legalistic Jews, they just continued and continued continued and continued and Paul said listen I'm not going to argue with them for me to sit here and argue with them is stupid it's a stupid controversy I'm going to preach the truth they're going to think what they think I can't convict them to believe the truth only God can but I'm going to keep sowing seeds anyway but the last thing I'm going to do is get caught up in this stupid, non-profitable argument because while I'm arguing with them, people are dying and going to hell. So church, don't get caught up in the foolish, silly controversies and arguments. And my friends, I want to ask you a question. Because Paul says after that, reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition. And that term for divisive literally is one who tries to call sections or divisions from unity with a misrepresentation of the truth. Paul says give them once. Give them twice and then treat them like a lost person. So let me ask you a question, church. How many divisions in the church have you ever witnessed where the root of the controversy was someone telling one side of a story? Or somebody maybe even fabricating most of the story. And they pull somebody aside and they tell them, their version of the truth. And before you know it, that person's told somebody and somebody else has told somebody and somebody else has told somebody. And my friends within, I mean, I've seen it happen in just a couple of days. And within a couple of days, the truth no longer matters. What matters is what that person decided they were going to tell somebody. And then suddenly everybody over here believes that to be the truth without ever looking to the other side to find out what the truth was. That person has done what they set out to do. They've divided the unity in the body of Christ. 
Can I tell you that Satan would much rather split the church against itself than attack it from the outside any day? You know why? Satan's not dumb. He's a wily tempter. He's been doing it since the beginning of time. He, he got a bunch of angels to follow him from heaven. He's pretty sneaky. And Satan said, you know what? That church does a pretty good job standing against the world. I'm going to split it in itself. I'm going to use the church as the greatest tool against the church. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get somebody to decide they're hurt and go tell a bunch of people that somebody hurt them. And rather than go find out the truth, they're just going to get mad. Wait and see. And what do we do? What do we do? I mean this from the bottom of my heart, and, and I'm going to be conservative with my percentage. Ninety percent, ninety percent of the times that I've gone to my office to deal with, with something of this nature where somebody's told somebody something, 90% of the time, probably more, 90% of the time when you get the other side of the story, you find out it's not exactly the way it was told. It's not exactly the way that it was told to you the first time. Boy, if it was, somebody would be in trouble. But when you find out the truth from the other side, you find out, boy, that was a pretty one-sided way to tell that story. That was a misrepresentation of the truth. Can, can I just tell you guys something? And this is just good, common, walking around sense, really. If somebody's telling you a story about somebody else, and it sounds out of character of that person or seems awfully one-sided of that person, then might I recommend you telling that person that's telling you the story to stop and go talk to the person they're talking about? Because can I tell you what you do when you sit and listen to it, and particularly when you go tell it again, you're engaging in gossip and slander. And last week, the Word of God said the church that honors God doesn't engage in slander. So when somebody starts telling you a story about somebody else, the first thing you ought to say is, hey, have you talked to them? And if they say no, then say, that's where I'd start. I'd start with them, not me, because I'm not them. I can't do anything about it. And you know what you've done right there? Let me tell you what you've done. You've thwarted the scheme of Satan to turn the church inside out against itself. Because if every time somebody went to gossip, somebody wasn't there to listen, do you know what gossip is when you're talking to a wall? It's an insane conversation for one person. There again, I hate to bring my children up too much, but I got four kids. They tell on each other a lot. Do you know what we do a lot of times? We'll pull whichever one of them is telling the sign. I say, now, Carter Mark, here's what I want you to do, son. I want you to go back to your room. I want you to close the door. I want you to look to your pillow, and I want you to tell me every I want you to tell that pillow everything that Kaysen just did to you that you were getting ready to tell me. And when you're done telling that pillow, you come on out, and we'll go on about our day. And he'll look at me. Every once in a while, he'll get all the way to the door of his room before he realizes that there's not going to be anything happens inside. And then he decides that tattling is no longer important. You know why? Because it don't mount to a hill of beans. But if he gets halfway back there and he comes back and he's still got something to tell me, I know it was pretty important in the first place. That's how I measure just, just how important the, the story is going to be. Got four kids. Got to weigh how many of them you listen to. Your brain gets overwhelmed. Ray McElroy hadn't listened to a story in seven kids. 
He tells the kids to tell each other their stories now. He said, listen, daddy can't take it no more. Yeah. Amen. What's bad is I tell my kids to go see their mama. Say, go see Miss Cricket. But seriously, folks. Somebody comes to, to gossip to you with something. Oh, you're never going to believe what they did to me. Oh, man. There I was going about my business. I was just honoring God, doing what God told me to do. And they hurt me. You're never going to believe what they said to me. If you said, uh, listen, I don't really want to know what they said to you. Maybe you should go talk to them. Oh, you ain't never going to believe. I was just obeying God. And then you over here, you guys said, hey, I don't really want to hear that. You should go talk to them about it. About the third time they do that, you know what they're going to do? Don't nobody care what's wrong with me. But you didn't engage in gossip. And eventually they're going to mess up and get back to the person they're talking about because they're going to run out of anybody else to talk to. Thwart the scheme of Satan. We ought to look different in our interpersonal relationships. We ought to not be a people that are divided. And can I tell you why? Can I tell you why? Because quite frankly, what we're doing is above whatever little petty dispute that you got. People are dying and going to hell because the church is trying to make each other feel better and pat each other on the back and say, I'm sorry that person over yonder hurt you. Let me go, let me go tell them what they did wrong. Listen, you shouldn't do that. You don't do that to them no more. You hurt their feelings. And well, they hurt my feelings. Okay, well, listen, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have hurt their feelings. Before you know it, at church, we're just playing parents, going back and rubbing egos and making everybody feel better. When at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only thing that matters is glorifying God. And if we're going to be a church that honors God, we got to put ourselves on the back burner. And put Christ on the front street every single time. But Paul says, Titus, unity in church is the most important thing you can have. If somebody is dividing the church, you tell them once, you tell them twice, and then you reject them as sinners. Stout, isn't it? Same language from Matthew, the same language from Corinthians as, as, as we deal with sin within the church. Paul says it is just as important that somebody that is divisive in the unity of the body of Christ be removed from the body of Christ that if there's somebody doing a sin that brings a black eye to the church. If somebody's doing something that causes the world to look at the inside and say, ooh, that's bad. That person has to be set outside the fellowship of the church. If somebody's causing division to the unity of the church, it's better that that person be removed than that they sit in there and fester like a splinter and ruin the entire fellowship of the church. That's not mean. That's not crude. That is biblical. It's not wrong. It's not a pastor's ego. It's not the deacon's ego. That is biblical. Because what we're doing in here is more important than any divisive spirit. Now, I do want to be clear. 
When it says reject them and treat them like a lost person, it's not saying you lock the door and say, listen, you're never welcome to come in these doors again. But you do say, listen, you're no longer an active member of this church, of this body of believers. You're welcome to come. We pray for your soul. But we have to believe if you would do these things, you must not know Jesus. And so we pray for your salvation. And we long for your repentance. Why does it say in Corinthians that we do this church discipline? Because we want them to get saved and come back into the fold, not because we want to be mean and push them out. Paul says there's to be no division. No division. So our relationships should be marked by grace. They should be marked by holiness. And as we close this morning, quite frankly, there should be an effect from having a relationship with the church. There's an effect that our relationships should have. Real quickly, skip forward to verse 14 for the sake of time. And let our people learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. To put it quite simply, the church should have an impact on the world. The church should be the light. We are not optional to be the light. We are not optional to be the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. It's not something we get to choose to try and do. It's something that we are. And So what light are we showing? Do we impact the communities around us? Do we impact the people that know us? Do we positively show the gospel of Jesus to everybody that sees us every single day? Nobody should ever come into our fellowship or come into contact with any of us that isn't pointed to the gospel of Jesus Christ in some way. If we're not pointing people to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're pointing people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Too long the discussion from the world has been this. The church is so focused on itself... That doesn't seem like what they say they're supposed to be. And if they're not going to do that, why would I even go in and be a part of it? And I ask you the same question. If we're not going to be the church, if we're not going to be the church that the Bible describes, why would anyone want to join in what we're doing? Why would anybody want to join in what we're doing? If they show up and the first thing they see is bickering and divisiveness and, uh, and all of these things... They're just going to move on. You got that at the country club. You got that at the Lions Club. You got that at at any other organization out there that you can join. But the church should be different. When people come into the church, they should say, that's something I want to be a part of. It's genuine. It affects the people around it. And it points everybody toward Jesus. So how do we respond to this text this morning? First, I think we need to ask ourselves this question. How does our relationships with those in the world look? Those outside the fellowship, how does it look? Are we peacemakers? Are we gentle? Are we humble? Or are we the first to jump on the the, the train to argue and, and be divisive? Are we the first to jump on it and try to point everything out? The Word of God says that's not where we should be. We should mark our relationships with grace, recognizing that we have been given grace when we didn't deserve it. And whether they deserve it or not, we show them grace. Second, we should ask ourselves, am I caught up in some silly controversy inside the church? 
Am I caught up in something that is, that is quite frankly unprofitable and useless? If I am, I should go talk to that person that the controversy is with. We should squash it, and I should no longer be a part of that. Because quite frankly, church, the gospel is worth protecting. The gospel is worth protecting. Is there somebody in your life that you should be impacting? Are you having an impact on somebody else? And if you're not, if you're not discipling somebody, if you're not being discipled by someone, if you're not engaging in sharing the gospel with someone regularly, would you come this morning and pray that God would show you that person? Because there's somebody, as a believer, we're never supposed to be stagnant. There's somebody you're supposed to be pouring into. And there's somebody that's supposed to be pouring into you right now. Would you pray that God would show you who that is? Let's pray this morning. Father God, God, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. God, even though we look to, a, to, to, a, to a, a letter seemingly written about the structure of the church, but God, when we dig deeper, we realize that the, the structure is of minimal importance compared to the way we treat each other. That God, your word has a word about how we look in the church, how we honor God in the church, about how we treat the world, Lord, about how we subject ourselves to authority, Lord God. God, at the end of the day, the most important thing is that we would be a church that stands on sound doctrine. God's sound doctrine says, I won't be divisive. I won't take part in those controversies. I'll not be a gossip. I'll not run somebody else down, that I'll be a light in the world, that I'll impact somebody, Lord God. God, there's not a person here this morning. There's not a person here this morning who could listen to these words and not say, I need to impact somebody that I'm not. God, would you convict us this morning? And if there be someone here who says, I've never done these things because I've never met Jesus, God, Would you reveal to them that your grace and mercy presented itself in the form of a baby growing to a sacrifice on a cross but that you didn't stay dead, Jesus. You rose on that third day and you're coming back again, Lord God. And God, would you show someone this morning your mercy and your grace and save their soul. For it is in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.